Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the latest on the UK economy, what to do about the Wuhan viral outbreak, as well as the past, present and future of work with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Well, hello and welcome to this week's Word on the Street. It feels like I've had forever off. You've had a number of uh, uh, of guest hosts on the podcast, but uh, it's back to me and Will again. So this week, what are we talking about? Well, the most important thing is work. The EU would have us believe that we do 37 and a half hours of it per week. I can tell you that that is not the case here. And looking at the bags under Will's eyes, I can tell you that he's working far more than 37 and a half hours a week. But most importantly, what is work? Namely, the contract between employer and employee, past, present and future. Also, we'll be talking about the economic impact of viral outbreaks. I'm not talking about computer offices. I'm talking about the Wuhan viral uh, outbreaks. What does that do to an economy and productivity? And we'll also be dipping into the latest deep data on the world economy and the Bank of England uh, next week, what what we can be expecting from them. Also, I guess a little bit of the Brexit bill passing uh, without fanfare. So, Will, the UK first, the markets are more or less expecting the Bank of England to uh, cut base rates next week by around 25 basis points. That's something that you pointed out was actually highly likely. I assume this reflects a deterioration in the economic data. Is there much for us to say there? Well, yeah. Yes, um, Toby, and welcome back. Um, I, I would say that um, a lot of the hard data has been um, deteriorating. Now, when I say hard data, this is not kind of um, data that's had a dust off with Jean Claude uh, Jean Claude Van Damme and uh, and one. It refers to data um, on stuff like consumption and investment that's already happened. Um, there are some glimmers of hope um, in the more forward-looking survey data, um, which tend to have a bit more predictive power, like I say. Uh, but nonetheless, with inflation currently printing quite a long way um, below the central bank target, the expectation is they will cut. Yes, we'll see. <laughs> and I entirely endorse your reference to Jean-Claude Van Damme, by the way, the muscles from Brussels, although I think uh, the EU would probably describe other people as the muscles from Brussels. <laughs> Look, being, a, being an optimist, I would say that now we've got a bit more clarity on Brexit going back to Brussels, the outlook for the UK economy should be brightening up with that extra clarity, shouldn't it? Yeah, that's certainly the hope. Um, and there's still, I mean, there's still plenty of uncertainty, obviously, Tobes, as you know. I mean, it, and that's really associated with the kind of the future trading arrangement. Um, and that will stay for a while yet. Yeah, you know, we'd expect these negotiations this year to go down to the wire again. Um However, we also think, and remember we've talked about this a bit, that the international economic environment will heat up a little bit this year, um, which should also provide some relief for the UK economy. Some of that heat will uh, seep over, uh, not weather-wise, but you know, we'll, the economic heat will seep over into our economy. Uh, excellent. So looking at the outlook for the, the global economy, um, last week you mentioned that things were looking up, the data points were beginning to trend up and stabilise again, stabilise and trend up. Um, how does the rapidly evolving situation, that terrible situation in Wuhan fit into this. Does does that sort of event, those, those sort of uh, 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 acts of God, force majeure sort of 
situation. Does that have a negative impact on markets? Well, yes. I mean, uh, it has so far, I think. You know, there's been a bit of a bid for, uh, you know, safe, uh, safe haven assets, you know, stuff like uh, kind of US treasuries and stuff like that. Um, and I don't need to say this, but I will anyway. We don't have any in-house expertise on that in this area, obviously. We can make a couple of kind of points, um, uh, you know, sort of context points. And I guess beyond kind of expressing as you did it you know a great deal of pity for the victims and the uh, uh, and the and the families um of course but i guess there's three main points that i would make and one obviously the timing is very unfortunate apart from anything else this is just as we approach the world's kind of largest migration um human migration in the form of lunar new year um and that's uh, obviously you know not ideal for those kind of valiantly trying to contain um the virus second um and so far and i stress so far um you know the fatality rate sits some way below and this is data from um the world health organization it sits the, the fatality rate sits some way below um either sars um, which is uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome uh, that was at about a 10 percent fatality rate um or mers which is the middle east um uh, respiratory syndrome and that uh, that had a sort of a higher fatality rate at about 33%. So this strain um, so far uh, appears to be primarily infecting older victims. So 73% uh, of patients are so far age of the, over the age of 40. Uh, and 40% of the victims um, have so far who have so far died um, have had underlying conditions such as heart disease and high pressure high blood pressure so that's some of the sort of statistics the third point um, is if we take SARS um, as a rough guide to the potential economic cost which sounds a bit cold but this is our you know this is our job as investors uh, we find that um, that the, the hit was sort of primarily focused on the services side of the economy which makes sense I guess um, and it was relatively transitory relatively brief so you know, we're not taking any action in portfolios at the moment, our multi-asset class portfolios and funds. There are obviously scenarios, uh, you know, involving, you know, mutations uh, and much higher fatality rates. Um, but so far, these are not central scenarios um, of any of the major experts. Um, so it's just another thing to keep an eye on. Now, and I suppose, if anything, it goes to it goes to show us the value of that geographic diversification because nobody saw it coming. Nobody can predict where these things are going to happen. It could have been central London, it happens to be somewhere else but uh, having having investments spread across the globe like this Abs- does mean that you can protect yourself from absolutely like correct that. yeah now <clears throat> the other thing i want to talk to you about is um this week earlier this week i saw your latest article on linkedin you were discussing the world of work and how you and the team think it will evolve in coming years now i'm interested in whether the computers are going to become sentient and take over the world of work like we saw in superman 3 which is a contemporaneous reference to your Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> illusion, or will the workers revolt and we have another Luddite revolution? In your article, as usual, you've delved into the history to provide some context, but I am going to let you get away with uh, <laughs> these you, historical references. I'm in a generous mood. It's very benevolent. Of you, yeah. <clears throat> it's all right. No, yeah, don't let, it's, it's a new year. It could get worse from here. But I guess the real, the real discussion about it's about the implicit contract between employer and employee that really begins with Henry Ford doesn't it 
Yes, I mean, I, I'll go a little bit further back before we get to football, because it is... So I, was trying to, I was trying to anchor you in near, <laughs> near <laughs> history. <laughs> trying to minimise this, but you can't, you can't contain this one. But no, so I mean, you go a little bit further back, like I say, still. And so I guess this is really about when massive companies start to become um, a, a part of our kind of um, uh, our, our landscape. Um, so if you think previous to the middle of the 19th century, almost all businesses everywhere are kind of small, family-owned, uh, family-managed. Um, and there are a few exceptions to this, of course. You know, we all know about them. You know, these are the kind of mega trading houses come kind of instruments of empire, such as the British East India, Dutch East India, and Hudson Bay companies. But these were these were very much the exception rather than the norm. And they're sort of almost government, aren't they, to a certain extent? Uh, there's a bigger debate there we can have on another podcast. Almost supranational. <laughs> exactly. But so with the... So what happens in, in the industrial revolutions in the 18th and 19th centuries comes to very significant changes. The first is you get sort of big improvements in transportation and communication. And the first one really comes about the form is facilitated by, um, you know, masses of uh, the sudden availability of masses of cheap, better quality steel. Um, and this allowed the manufacturer to serve um, a large market. The second is really the introduction of these kind of new special purpose manufacturing machines, which kind of allowed for goods um, to be mass produced much more cheaply and efficiently. Okay, so give me an example. The example I'll use is actually cigarettes. So I can barely mention uh, uh, mention cigarettes for the craving it provokes. But nonetheless, one of the more kind of famous examples is kind of Bonsack's um, cigarette machine. Um, and this machine was basically pretty quickly able to produce about 120,000 cigarettes a day, um, which replaced a room full of people producing a fraction of that number. Now, the fascinating thing here is that it is the effect this has on the labor force, if you think about it. So uh, if you go back, so if you think about it, it, this is now kind of an expensive machine for an owner to buy. It's expensive to service and maintain. You need specialists um, and you need more inputs and you have a lot more outputs to find buyers for. So suddenly you have procurement, maintenance, distribution, marketing, uh, and a range of other kind of increasingly specialized roles in place of the original hand-rolling jobs. Now, anyway, so you you move along a little bit, you know, uh, uh, along quite a while and several other kind of, you know, pioneers in various different parts um, to um, to Henry Ford. Uh, and you mentioned him. Ford's founded in kind of 1903. Uh, and he kind of strikes a bargain with his workers. Not so much explicit, but basically there's a bundle of benefits to working there. Um, now, Chief among these is a degree of kind of economic um, security. And this comes in exchange for kind of repetitive, subjugated roles in Ford factories, which are kind of function of the division of labor. However, if you think about it, the proof of solvency and promise of future enrichment that came along with these jobs, that allowed workers to access credit. Um, you know, houses, cars, and other consumer goods follow. Uh, and suddenly we had the potential for the growth in mass consumption needed uh, to meet our increasing capabilities in mass production. So it's effectively the origin, that, that job security is the origin of a high consumer confidence number. Well, yes, yeah, the origin of the economy we still sort of work in today. We operate in today to a certain extent. Okay, so <clears throat> the point is, then that that contract has been crumbling now for some time, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point is that, you know, from in the last several decades, you would say that you've, you know, job security has been falling in many parts of the West and in many industries within the West. And, you know, the average worker, and it's a well-worn chart, you know, has suffered, you know, roughly four decades of kind of stagnating uh, inflation adjusted wages. And that's, you know, leading many to say that that paradigm, that employment paradigm is should be coming to an end. And how do we replace it? All right. So exactly that. What does replace it and what can we do? Um, in truth, I have to admit, I don't know. Um, 
it's a very difficult one. I mean, real wages um, are quite difficult. Um, you can sort of make a case about, you know, this is a sort of offsetting point about real wages um, and say, you know, what can I buy with them? So the old example, I think we've used this a few times before, you know, but you imagine, imagine you get home at seven o'clock um, last night and, and this is a theoretical evening, you know, you... Um, put your clothes uh, in the washing machine you put some dishes in the dishwasher you go upstairs or you go to you know your office and you do an hour's work you maybe you can log on and you know order food from a delicious local restaurant um, you know maybe book a holiday or something like that you know and the question you ask yourself is how long would that hour have taken me 20 years ago 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Well, what's interesting, actually, the, you, so I, I see your analogy and I raise you. Actually, I, I, I do it myself, but that hour that we have on the train commuting, those of us that commute yeah. into, into London, what you're able to do and execute with a smartphone now, whether it's to sort of renew your car insurance or tax a vehicle yeah, or... Yeah, yeah. And know. that's not a luxury good anymore. Do you know what I mean? 10 years ago, that was a luxury good, if yeah. you think about it. And that's the same in the sense with the washing machine, dishwasher. These aren't available to everyone, by all means. You know, neither is internet access, but the majority of society has access to these things. So in a way, that, that sort of offsets some of it. The other thing to think about is, you know, what there's a guy called uh, John Van Rienen, John Van Rienen, who is, uh, you know, quite a famous economist at... Uh, um, uh, at MIT, um, he was at MIT, I think he's at LSE now, but I mean, he basically argues that, you know, technology is not the enemy, but bad policy is. So, you know, a lot of this comes down to, you know, government, you know, what do they do? How do you design a social safety net to make sure that workers are both caught, you know, who are made redundant and also retrained and sort of, you know, helped to get back into the labor force? It's a very complicated story. And that flexibility, labor force flexibility is important. And social contract becomes really important. This is something that we're sort of, you know, well, so, so we're, you, we're experiencing at the moment. So you hit the, it, it, you struck on the topic that I want to cover next then, which is it's all very well us sitting here and talking about, you know, well, you can you should just become a computer programmer or you should evolve with the economy. That's fine if one sits at the apex of the educational pyramid. But actually, the vast majority of society, certainly globally, but in, in developed countries as well, don't sit at the apex of that pyramid. And actually, the execution of manual work for many people... In, in order to, to get a livable uh, a livable wage is really important. So what happens? How can we have any faith that new jobs will become available to everybody, the sort of the democratisation of those jobs, if artificial intelligence is increasingly moving up the skill ladder, sort of effectively pinching the routine repetitive tasks that many people enjoyed to, to, to perform. I mean, that's totally right. And, and it's not just, I mean, the point is the AI is not just now pinching the routine repetitive task, it's pinching the, starting to pinch the non-routine stuff as well. And your point is well made because, you know, a lot of the, you know, so a lot of the Ford contract was also, they provided, um, you know, people often talked about the sense of pride, community place, those kinds of things of sort of, you know, the honour of these kind of manufacturing jobs. Now, you know, some of the service sector jobs that have replaced those possibly don't carry the same kind of pride and honor and, and you know john van reen and the guy i just mentioned you know he had four kind of things that he talks about with regards to how the labor market kind of offsets this kind of jobs robocalypse let's call it um did, you just made that one i didn't up. he made it no you no, used no, it no, no, no. i used i that's, used it that's I a disgrace it is, it is, it is. your <laughs> wife works in the, in the <laughs> no no I, that's a disgrace that's a, the, the 
Phillips. <laughs> yeah, how many times it's, you I can use that it. over the next I week, listeners? I did not coin it. That's okay. all I could say. But, you know, so the point I think is that you get to is that so there's four of them basically in talks. And one he calls the kind of Uber effect. And this is interesting, I think, because, you know, here it's where you introduce possibly a better product into a product category. So if enough people, you know, so a, a good example of this is um, is, is Uber, exactly. So he's, he argues that between 2015 and 2018, Taxi trips in yellow cabs in New York um, declined from 410,000 to 295,000. Now, however, total taxi trips, um, including uh, yellow cabs and ride hailing, they doubled nearly. So 475,000 up to 820,000. So the point is that what you did is because the product was so good, you actually created extra demand. Now, the second effect is the kind of Walmart um, effect, which is, you know, like even if jobs fall, the fact that Walmart has brought prices down on the goods that they sell allows people to have money to spend elsewhere on other goods, other kind of services. So you create jobs in those other sectors. The other, the third is a kind of business effect. And this is really about kind of, you know, the good example that you can use here is, you know, you know, uh, in 1980, it took 10, you know, people, person hours um, to produce a ton of steel. Like now, or 2017, that takes 1.5 people hours. Now, the point is that obviously you get a fall in employment in the steel industry, but all of the users of steel suddenly have massive more efficiency uh, to sort of grow, employ more, and so on. And the steel users are many more than the steel producers. That's that's that point there. So so the big takeaway there is the fact that... A, a technology coming along and making the traditional economy seem somewhat redundant is something that we have seen again and again and again. And much as it pains me to admit it, actually, history has taught us some great lessons on on that. That, that you've mentioned it yourself before. This com- the, the, the surprisingness of innovation of the human species. We will create new. Well, work. and it's not always reassuring for everyone, you know. But I think we can, you know, you look at the new jobs that are regularly created, and that's the final point really is that you look at the new jobs that are created I mean would our great grandparents even recognize the things that we do as jobs uh, you know I think my great grandfather would look at it and say well you don't even do any work all you do well, is drink ne- coffee and talk right like, never mind that? that's not a job ne- never mind that I'm already turning into that guy because I cannot believe the number of people who describe their employment status as youtuber yeah it's awesome not only that but <laughs> they also awesome. earn far more money than I do <laughs> way but, way way more I'm always you know an app developer, Zumba instructor, none of these, uh, you know, occupations existed 10 years ago. And, yeah, and that's you, a remarkably short period yeah, of time. Yeah, it's a remarkably short period of time. And 100 years from now, you know, we won't recognise most of the, or as you suspect that, you know, if we were still alive, then we wouldn't recognise half of we wouldn't be alive, obviously, uh, unless lifespans really do extend. Um, but... Um, yeah, we. I doubt that we would recognise most of the jobs that it's are. It's fairly safe to say if you keep using words like robocalypse, you're not going <laughs> to last long. until next year. Like, walk out the building. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. I imagine that will that from an investment perspective, obviously we don't give advice, but a good solution to many of these unpredictable uh, events that may be coming down the pike towards us would probably be to uh, to hold a diversified fund or portfolio. Isn't well, that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds self-serving, but I think. The interesting point about this is in the, this is the one that we're always making is that you know a lot of this um, disturbance in the labour market is about companies find to, trying to find productivities, efficiencies, so on. It's the story of kind of corporate sector over time. 
And the point is that the benefits from those efforts, they fall through to corporate shareholders. And so some offsetting effect can be achieved, you know, if you're worried about, uh, you know, the, the, the volatility of the jobs market and so on, by actually owning a stake in those companies. And that is really what the world's, uh, you know, uh, the world's capital markets are much more available to everybody now. And that's the really attractive point. And so there's no harm in having even just a small diversified bet on the world's companies um, and that should over time provide some sort of offset uh, to all that uncertainty in the labor market not self-serving at all uh, 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 as, uh, as i said it's um it's 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 very sound insight will all that remains me to do is to thank you and of course the rest of the team um for for more insights this week uh listeners if you haven't seen will's latest article on linkedin where he goes into the details of what work is and what it might become then i would seriously urge you to have a look at that it's a bit of a cracker as far as will's articles go that that made me sound. That made it sound like that you were the ones answering good. Of the articles that Will produces, <laughs> all of will. which, all of which are excellent. This one is conspicuously good. And uh, of course, thank you very much for for your time in uh, in listening to us. And we hope to catch up with you again uh, next week. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it uh, with your network. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.